0: Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 270. It's titled, Repo Rate Soared and Why It Matters. Last week, I got a call from a retired family member who heard from a friend that there was some disruption related to interest rates and banks that was very similar to what happened during the great financial crisis of 2008. He wanted to know, should he move his assets to cash? This is remarkable how quickly an esoteric financial news event that we're going to talk about in today's episode spread among some people in the U.S. And they were worried about it, even if they didn't really understand it. And it's not easy to understand. Believe me, it's taken me a number of hours of going through trying to understand what happened, why it happened, and why it matters. Here's a sense of what happened per the Financial Times. The cost of borrowing cash overnight in exchange for U.S. Treasuries, known as a repurchase agreement or repo, soared early last week pushing the main interest rate targeted by the Federal Reserve out of its target range. That prompted the New York Fed to intervene in the market for the first time in a decade on Tuesday. It subsequently continued daily $75 billion cash injections throughout the week. Now that's the crux of it. There's these financial transactions to securities called repurchase agreements, which we'll look at, But more importantly, the interest rate on them got out of control, up to 10% at one point. Which means the Fed lost control of its policy rate for a short amount of time. Which gives a hint for what we can learn from this. The Fed doesn't have complete control over what's going on. Now, what is a repurchase agreement? It is when one entity sells government securities to another entity, usually overnight, but sometimes longer, and promises to buy the securities back, usually the next day, and at a higher price. The seller gets cash, and the buyer effectively has collateral that secures the loan. The buyer of the securities earns interest, which is effectively the difference between what the bond was sold for And bought back. Since the government security is bought back at a higher price, there's an imputed interest rate. Given the high quality of the collateral and the short term nature of the loan, this imputed interest rate is typically in line with the policy target rate set by the central bank. So in this case, it's the Federal Reserve and it's known as the Federal Funds Rate or the Fed Funds Rate. This rate was lowered by. 25 basis points or 0.25% last week. So the range is 1.75 to 2%. And repos should be priced generally within that range. Now, here's where there's a little bit of confusion. What's a repo versus a reverse repo? It just depends on your perspective. The party selling the security and agreeing to buy it back, for them, this is a repurchase agreement or a repo. For the party buying the security, it's known as a reverse repurchase agreement or reverse repo. But again, it depends on whose perspective we're looking at. Here's how the New York Federal Reserve puts it In a repo transaction, the desk, in this case the New York Fed, purchases treasury, agency debt, or agency mortgage backed securities from a counterparty subject to an agreement to resell the securities at a later date. It is economically similar to a loan collateralized by securities, having a value higher than the loan to protect the desk against market and credit risk. So the value of securities is always greater, usually about 102 percent the value of the loan, just in case the security changes in price. The New York Fed continues, repo transactions temporarily increase the quantity of reserve balances in the banking system, because the bank is selling these treasuries and getting cash, or that increases the reserves. We're going to talk about more about reserves in this episode because it has an impact on these whole repo transactions. On Monday evening, September 16th, the rate of interest for repo agreements got as high as 10%. That means there was a lot more demand for cash in exchange for selling government securities than there was the supply of those willing to enter into Repo transactions. There was a demand for liquidity. Who was less willing to lend? Well, first, money market funds. These are open end mutual funds that invest in short term debt securities, including treasury bills, commercial paper, which is very short term debt issued by corporations. And money market funds enter into repurchase agreements. These funds were experiencing outflows of about $35 billion. Because investors in money market funds needed the cash to pay estimated tax bills that were due on September 15th. In addition, there were investors in money market funds who had bought US Treasury securities at the recent auction and they needed to settle up and make payments. So there was money coming out of money market funds. These money market funds are big players in the repo market. JP Morgan reports that. Money market funds have financed, through repurchase agreements, upwards of $1.3 trillion of Treasury securities from primary dealers. Primary dealers are trading counterparties with the New York Fed. So they help the Federal Reserve implement monetary policy, and these primary dealers also bid in ongoing Treasury auctions. So they are buying Treasury securities. Banks' holdings of U.S. treasuries have more than doubled to $200 billion from $100 billion in the past year, according to PIMCO. This inventory of treasuries has been essentially financed through repurchase agreements, as money market funds have taken ownership of these treasury securities in exchange for cash that then would go to the banks and the primary dealers the amount that money market funds have increased their participation in repos related to treasuries it's up 330 billion dollars year over year according to JP Morgan so money market funds have been big players but on monday the 16th they pulled back because they had money coming out of their funds and so they couldn't participate to the same level in addition commercial banks have been big participants in repurchase agreements because they can earn additional yield above and beyond what they can earn on the reserves that they have deposited at the central bank, the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve pays interest on reserves that commercial banks hold at the central bank. And that rate of interest is usually a little lower than what banks can earn participating in repurchase agreements or repos. So banks are typically willing to participate but not so much on September 16th. The Federal Reserve cut its interest rate on excess reserves 30 basis points, down to 1.8%. It's even less interest that they're getting on these reserves because that encourages banks to participate in repo transactions. Here was a fascinating quote by Jane Irig. She's the Associate Director and Economist at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. She writes, the Federal Open Market Committee has stated that it would like to operate monetary policy in the longer run with an ample supply of reserves in the banking system. In recent weeks, and she wrote this in March 2019, market participants have been mentioning estimates of the level of ample reserves to be in the range of $1 trillion to $1.4 trillion, much larger than the pre-crisis level of less than $20 billion. Banks say they need $1.4 trillion of reserves to operate when before 2008 they only needed $20 billion or less. She continues, This eye-popping increase in the projected level of reserves needed to implement monetary policy reflects, in large part, banks' increased demand for reserves resulting from new liquidity regulations. Banks need more liquidity, because of regulations. She goes on in this paper and describes what some of these regulations are. There's the liquidity coverage ratio, and these regulations came out of the financial crisis, international banking regulations called Basel III. This liquidity coverage ratio applies to large and internationally active banking organizations. The metric is they need to hold enough high-quality liquid assets that's greater than their net cash outflows over a 30-day stress period. If there's stress in the market, they need to have a large amount of high-quality liquid assets. So they're not having to go borrow the money, let's say in the repo market, that they have enough on-hand liquidity. That's one requirement. They also need to have what's known as a resolution plan or a living will, which is a way to ensure these large banks can orderly dissolve their organizations, which means they need to have enough short-term liquidity to cover that. Those are two requirements, and a survey the Federal Reserve conducted of banks asked them to rank the factors that affect the amount of reserves that they need. 68% 68% an in internal liquid stress metrics. In other words, in order to pass these tests, they need to have sufficient liquidity. And that's why they need a trillion to $1.4 trillion of reserves when prior to the crisis, they only needed $20 billion. So it has to do with regulations. Here's what James McIntosh of the Wall Street Journal wrote. In one sense... The problem is too much regulation rather than too little. In the past, U.S. banks would simply expand their balance sheets to ease any pressure in the overnight secured lending or repo markets. They would offer cash loans against the safety of treasuries and make nearly risk-free profits along the way. But impending quarterly tests of both liquidity and size encouraged the big banks not to expand too much ahead of the deadline. This deadline September 30th. They have to submit what's known as the Consolidated Report of Conditions and Income, or a call report, where they have to show whether they meet these liquidity requirements. So that's the deadline looming. And as a result, they did not want to participate in the repo market to the same extent that they had earlier. And so that put stress on the repo markets, which is why rates soared to 10%. Macintosh continues. Meanwhile, they are absorbing, they being These primary dealers and banks are absorbing a flood of treasuries issued to finance the government's nearly $1 trillion deficit. The seasonal demand for cash to pay tax bills pushed the system to the limit. There's a huge supply of treasuries coming on board, and part of, again, the flow out of money markets was to settle the recent auction of treasury securities, and money also flowed out of commercial banks as depositors paid for their treasuries, which means reserves fell even more. Before we look at why reserves held by banks have fallen to essentially the floor that's causing stress in the repo market, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Togovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at NetSuite. Dot com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. Market participants estimated the amount of reserves needed in the banking system or deposits held by banks at the Federal Reserve should be in the $1 trillion to $1.4 trillion range. That's where we're at. trillion of reserves. That's down from a high of $2.7 trillion. These reserves, the vast majority, were created as part of the Federal Reserve's Quantitative Easing Program, also known as Large-Scale Asset Purchases. This is where the Federal Reserve purchased U.S. Treasuries and mortgage-backed securities from banks and non-banks, working through its primary dealers, and then offset those purchases with an increase in reserves. Here's an educational part of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco's site. When the Fed makes loans or buy assets, it creates both an asset on its balance sheet, so the loans or the securities, the treasury bonds, and a deposit liability, the reserves. For example, since June 2007, the combined magnitude of Fed Direct Lending Programs, and Asset Purchases, it got as high as $2.7 trillion. When the Fed made the loans and paid for the assets it purchased, it credited banks' reserve accounts, which created a Fed liability. There's a white paper by the Federal Reserve that goes even into more detail, very detailed accounting of how this works. It's titled, How Does the Fed Adjust Its Security Holdings and Who Is Affected? The paper says when the Federal Reserve purchases a treasury security, it goes to the open market and purchases security from a primary dealer who may have obtained it from a bank or a non-bank entity that had been holding the security. If it's a non-bank entity, they continue these steps leave the size of the non-bank's balance sheet unchanged. It receives cash for treasury securities. This is a point I've mentioned numerous times regarding quantitative easing, that it was an asset swap, that the Federal Reserve's quantitative easing program didn't put additional purchasing power into the economy. In other words, it wasn't a helicopter drop where everybody had all this free money that they could go out and spend. It was entities that had an asset, a treasury bond, and they sold it and they got cash, which they could go spend. But it would have been no different from their perspective had they just sold it to anyone. But from the Federal Reserve's perspective, it bought a treasury bond, it took it out of circulation, it added it to its balance sheet, and they offset that asset with a liability which shows up as a reserve in the commercial banking system. The paper continues, as a bank is the intermediary for the transaction, it receives payment from the Federal Reserve in its reserve account. So this is the bank's asset. The Federal Reserve bought the security. It paid for it. The money went to the non-bank entity, if that was the one who sold the security through the primary dealer. The non-bank entity now has a new deposit in its account. Deposits are liabilities of banks. The asset of the bank is the amount the Federal Reserve just deposited. So it's the reserve for the commercial bank. And so the new deposit and the new reserve balance each other out. And then on the Federal Reserve's balance sheet, they have the new asset as an asset, and their liability is that new deposit that they put in the commercial bank. So everything ties together. The result is, as the Federal Reserve was buying more and more treasuries, their balance sheet was ballooning, and the reserve balances of banks was increasing. Now, the entity that sold the treasury, they might have then taken the money and spent it on something or bought another asset. But across the entire system, the reserve balances increase because the Federal Reserve created the money to buy these Treasury bonds and mortgage backed securities out of thin air. They just, it's all counting, just digits. Now, how does the reserve balances get reduced then as these Treasury holdings mature that the Federal Reserve has? Well, when one of the bonds matures, it's removed from the asset side of the balance sheet. And the U.S. Treasury also has an account at the central bank. And its account is reduced by the amount of the Treasury bond. Just as if the Treasury paid money to the Federal Reserve as that Treasury bond matured. Now, no cash changes hands. It's just simple accounting. The Treasury Department's account is reduced by the value of the matured bond, and it's removed from the asset side of the balance sheet. Now, just that component doesn't have any impact on bank reserves. It just impacts the asset side of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet because it doesn't have that Treasury bond anymore, and it impacts U.S. Treasury's account at the Federal Reserve. But typically, the U.S. Treasury is rolling over its bonds and issuing new bonds, And when those new bonds are issued, somebody bought them usually from their bank account. And so their deposit in the bank account is reduced by the amount of treasuries that were bought. And correspondingly, the reserves, the other side of the commercial bank's balance sheet is reduced by the same amount. And so that's how reserves are drained. And now we're down to $1.4 trillion in terms of total reserves. Now we've listed out all the players in these recent events that sent repo rates soaring. Let's read another quote, this time from the New York Times, as it explains it. And this time, as we go through it, you should be able to understand it better. This was an article by Gina Smarlik titled, The Fed May Have Shrunk Its Balance Sheet Too Much, Does It Matter? She writes, Evidence of trouble first appeared on September 16th, when a dollar shortage reared its head in the market for overnight repurchase agreements, or repos, basically short-term loans that hedge funds and banks tap for funds. The cash crunch occurred as corporate taxes came due and government bond issuance sopped up liquid cash. In other words, money flowing out of bank deposits and money market funds to pay taxes and settle these treasury securities. She continues, usually banks would have swooped in to supply fresh liquidity before conditions got out of line, attracted by the climbing repo rates. The repo rates are higher than what banks can earn on their reserves. But this time, they hoarded their reserves. The Fed seems to have shrunk its balance sheet to a place where reserves no longer come to the rescue during times of market pressure. Why are banks hoarding their reserves? Because they have upcoming stress test in terms of liquidity due at the end of the month, September 30th. They don't want to give up their reserves because they want to have ample liquidity to pass these stress tests. Smiley continues, repo markets spill into other money market instruments, including the secured overnight financing rate, a broad measure of how much it costs to borrow cash overnight. That rate is supposed to replace the London Interbank Offered Rate, or LIBOR, which has been plagued by rate-rigging scandals as a cornerstone for financial market operations. So as the repo rate goes up, it tends to pull up a little bit, this supposedly risk-free rate or near-risk-free rate, to just lend cash overnight. So what can be done about this? If banks are hoarding liquidity, money's flowing out of Money market accounts. The Treasury is issuing more treasuries and reserve balances have been shrinking as the Federal Reserve lets its holdings of Treasury bonds and mortgage backed securities mature instead of reinvesting them like they were. What do we do? Well, first, and this is what the Federal Reserve did, they stepped in at $75 billion a day and were willing to do repo transactions. So they provided liquidity. They would buy the treasuries and give the primary dealers and banks cash. And so that solved it a little bit. So they could continue to do that. In fact, they've said they would through October 10th so that the banks can get the reports in. The Federal Reserve could expand its balance sheet again, a version of quantitative easing to increase the amount of reserves above that $1.4 trillion level. Or they could just come up with a way to make it easier for banks to swap treasuries for cash reserves. Now, all three of these options were outlined in that article in the New York Times. What are Federal Reserve officials saying? Well, here's Jay Powell, the chair of the Federal Reserve. He was asked, would the Fed consider buying bonds in a more aggressive way to increase reserves? He said, for the foreseeable future, we're going to be looking at if needed, doing the sorts of things that we did the last two days. In other words, just using their existing repurchase agreement facility and entering into repo transactions. John C. Williams, who's president of the New York Fed, said, The Fed will examine these recent market dynamics and their implications for the liquidity needs in relation to the overall amount of reserves held at the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve Bank Boston President Aaron Rosengren said, My own personal preference would be to move toward much more of a buffer than we currently have. He's talking about reserves. The reserve scarcity is a solvable problem. And finally, William C. Dudley, he's the former head of the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, said, It's not QE in the sense that you're not trying to push down long-term interest rates. The point is totally different. He's saying that if the Federal Reserve would enter into these large-scale Asset purchases, the idea is not to push down rates further, but just to provide additional liquidity to banks. What do we learn from this? Why does it matter? The Federal Reserve was caught off guard. The Fed lost control of its policy rate, the repo rate. They're supposed to keep it in line. That's why they have a target range. And they didn't, which means that central banks are not infallible, they make mistakes. Much of this unconventional policy, it's experiments. It's experimental. They're still trying to figure it out. They don't have complete control. We talked about that earlier this year in episode 246, what central banks don't know should concern you. There's a lot central banks don't know. They're guessing. They're trying their best to keep the economy moving forward, keeping inflation under control, keeping the unemployment rate low. But it's a very different world than it was before the financial crisis, exacerbated by more regulations in the attempt to keep banks safer. And they do, but they also lead to other stresses. That's what a complex adaptive system is. The participants adapt as conditions change and there can be unintended consequences. The Federal Reserve didn't know what the right level of reserves should be that commercial banks hold now they know maybe they're getting a little low it's gone from 20 billion up to 1.4 trillion dollars finally why it matters is the supply of us treasury bonds is increasing with the federal government running a greater than 1 trillion dollars deficit there's an additional supply of treasury bonds putting upward pressure on interest rates negative rates in the us are not a given given the increased supply of Treasury bonds. Cameron Kreis, he's a macro strategist at Bloomberg, said, There's too many treasuries floating around the market and not enough cash to finance them. There was a cash crunch, a liquidity crunch. Been solved. The Federal Reserve provided more liquidity, but they should have been there to start with. They let their policy rate get out of control. It was a huge blunder. We shouldn't be overly alarmed. This is not a time to move all our assets to cash, like my family member asked about. Not a time to freak out, but we also can't assume that everything will go smoothly. We should have a buffer in our own financial lives, a margin of safety, not be all in all the time in terms of risk taking. We should have assets separate from the financial system, pockets of independence because we don't really know what's going to happen. We pay attention to conditions, but this came out of the blue. And it's not like it was in 2008, where there was a huge distrust of other banks and other parties, so no one was willing to lend overnight, so the LIBOR rate soared. This was a liquidity issue, but it should not have happened, and it did. And it's a hint that other things could happen in the future that were unexpected, and we need to be ready for that. That's episode 270. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. Why are there? Please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. This is an email I send right after the episode's released. It has the links to that week's episode. Dozen or so links this week, just researching this somewhat complex episode. But I also send out an essay with that email, some of the best writing I do each week on money, investing, and the economy. And you can sign up for that at MoneyForTheRestOfUs.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.